I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. A new book takes us to trail British Columbia at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries. The book not only looks at a pioneering newspaper, but the social history of trail as it grows into a small but prosperous community. The book is called Printer's Devils, How a Feisty Pioneer Newspaper Shaped the History of British Columbia's Smelter City, 1895-1925. to It's a thoroughly engaging book full of fascinating history, as seen through the pages of uh, what was uh, called the Trail Creek News, a weekly publication that continues today as the Trail Daily Times. The book's uh, author, Ron Verju, who joins me now, has done a splendid job at gathering the interesting events as uh, we see this town in the southeastern part of the province grow thanks to industry. We read the book seeing how these pioneers experience the reality of life, death, a world war, a flu pandemic, smallpox outbreaks, as well as the conflict between business and labor, friction between the white majority and the Chinese East Indian and Dukabors. The people, and they were mainly men who owned the paper and edited it, cast a giant shadow over the, its contents and its history. Ron Verju is a writer, historian, and documentary filmmaker. His most recent book, Smelter Wars, a rebellious red trade union, fights for its life in wartime Western Canada, was published in 2022. His other books include Radical Rag and Underground Times, his work has appeared in academic journals, newspapers, and magazines, including the Globe and Mail, Vancouver Sun, BC History, and Canada's History. This new book is published by Caitlin Press. Ron will be in Rossland and Grand Forks next week. Visit CaitlinPress.com for information on those events. He joined me uh, from his home in Victoria, British Columbia, earlier this week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Ron Verju. Mr. Verju, good morning. Good morning, Joe. How are you? I'm pretty good yourself. So the Trail News continues today. It's it's owned by Black Press. Um, is it still called the Trail News? No, it uh, it's gone through various transformations. My story in Printer's Devils in 1925, it has become a daily for the first time in Trail's history, uh, and it is called the Trail Daily Bulletin. Uh, that paper goes on for a few years, but it's then bought out and it becomes the Trail Times, mm -hmm. and then in the early 30s, it becomes the Trail Daily Times, a paper which goes on for many decades, and then recently has become the Trail Times again, and it's still publishing in Trail. Yeah. Um, so, so your book looks at its founding, the, the first 30 years, if you will, 1895 to 1925. Um, That's correct. These are such fascinating years as I'm reading the book, because, because um, you know, telephones aren't really... Um, they aren't there yet, and, and we see as we read your book how, how they start arriving in the Kootenays. Uh, the automobile um, mm -hmm. also arrives uh, during this time. Um, and then the, the, the population, in terms of, of, of its growth in these 30 years, uh, I guess it's the smelter that brings people there. Is that right? Yes. In, in 1895, uh, uh, someone called uh, Fritz Hines, who's known as one of the three Montana copper kings, comes out and he starts the smelter, starts building the smelter on the on the banks of the Columbia in 1895. And by 1896, they blow in the smelter. They start the smelter. So it becomes the mainstay of the local economy. And so how many people does that employ, say, at its height? Well, at the time, I think 
Hines is drawing a, a number of people from his operations in, in Butte, Montana. They're all miners and smelter workers, and they come up. So I think it's in, in the initial stages, a few hundred. But, but you know, by the, by the middle of my book, sort of the, uh, the mid-teens, uh-huh. uh, they're, they're talking about 1,000 people. And it, it grows eventually to many, many thousands, and it's now back, it's now back down to a thousand. Yeah, and, and and so what is that worth to the the, the local economy, especially in, the, in the, these thirty years that you write about? Well, the the smelter, as they say, was a kind of a, a keystone to the to the economy. People uh, brought and sold ore in that in those days uh, with with first of all Heinz's company and then later with the Canadian Pacific Railways company because they bought it out from him in 1898 and they, this is this is you know early days prospectors who actually started the they they were able to sell their their findings uh-huh. their prospecting findings to the smelter and little by little companies formed around that and of course there were always companies that were helping <laughs> the local economy by providing hotels and restaurants and laundries and so forth for the for the population. One of those services was a little thing called the Trail Creek News. Mm. You know, where there's, a, where there's a virgin in town, there's going to be a newspaper, and uh, a guy named uh, William Spencer Thompson brought, brought his newspaper knowledge to Trail in 1896. And so he's... He's actually late 95, yeah. actually. So, so he brings not only his experience in, in the business, but he actually brings a press up, doesn't he? That's right. He, he and his he and his wife Martha and their adopted son uh, bring up a, a a press from the from the uh, from the burnt out Sprague newspaper that he 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 leaves in ashes. Yeah, um, Washington. And so he he uses it as a as a, a, a way to make money, and um, <laughs> it's, it's rather quaint. Reading the paper, uh, reading your book to see how the paper makes uh, its revenue through advertising and subscriptions, which I don't think a paper can do that today, can they? (laughs) I don't think so. But I don't think they were doing it very well in those days either. Mm. (laughs) I mean, at one point, as you read, you'll see that there was the the Klondike Gold Rush takes place during this period. And uh, you see see the editor, Thompson, kind of contemplating whether he should just dump the paper and, and Klondike and make his fortune in gold mining. <laughs> he, he doesn't do that, but he does eventually move to Alaska. Uh, and this is an interesting story because it shows that you know W.F. Thompson wasn't really a money-grabbing guy. He really did like the adventure of being a newspaper editor, and he, he liked the color of being part of the scene, part of the community. So he went on to start other newspapers up in uh, Alaska, uh, including the Fairbanks paper. Mm-hmm. So he, he kind of had an interesting, colorful career. And he, I, I don't think he died until the 20s, but he had quite a quite a, quite a career. Your, your book is full of fascinating characters like Thompson. Um, and, and, <laughs> and I'd like to focus on, say, the editors and the, the publishers, uh, the people that worked at the paper, because there, there, is, there is a real adventure spirit, I guess, if you will. I mean, I guess, I guess it's the locale where the, they find themselves in that... that evokes that. I mean, you wouldn't go from, um, you say, the big city here in Vancouver to a place like Trail if you didn't have some, sort of an adventure spirit in you. Um, I would say. Yeah, and then, so I guess that that, that um, influences the paper, and it fi- find, that spirit finds its way into the pages of the paper. I mean, you've read the thing um, over these 30 years. I mean, it, it's not only um, uh, news, I guess, and entertainment, but, but it's a lot of fun, isn't it? It is. 
for me, it was a great laugh and uh, and interesting because my family comes from that area. Mm. So I was able to ever every once in a while, my my family name popped up in the pages of the Trail News and uh, <clears throat> including an obituary of my grandfather on the front pages. My grandfather was really no important person, but somehow it ended up on the front pages. It was a paper that I. It was like all community papers, and these are a dying breed. Uh-huh. It kind of brought everything to the fore. I mean, if you had a problem with your, you know, your your local cow running down Main Street, you know, <laughs> the paper would cover that. <laughs> or, or the one of the big issues, uh, Joe, that I found interesting was all the editors had a deep concern for fire protection. Mm. Uh, many, many, many buildings in those days were built of wood, and one of the big threats of all these towns. Uh, some of them now ghost towns because of fire, were uh, were burnt out, and uh, some of the papers that I cover in the book uh, disappeared because they were basically burned down. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just uh, it's just an amazing story, and and I guess in a sense, uh, the Trail News was crusading for better fire protection for the town, and I, and I think that's true of, of of other areas of concern, not all, but other areas of. Where it was trying to be a real community newspaper, it was trying to help the community. Yeah, um, and, and when when you're going back and reading the the, um, the paper as as you have for for writing this book, by the way, where where is it available for for say some of us that that are interested in, in knowing what it looks like? Say, can we do that online? You could do it online as soon as the UBC Historic Newspapers finishes <laughs> finishes digitizing it. But uh, here's a here's a side route. Um, Selkirk College up in Castlegar has a full copy, both digital and uh, microfilm, mm-hmm. of what what exists of the Trail Creek News and the Trail News. And, and in the thirty years that you write about in the book, were you able to find say um, everything? I mean, are, are there gaps say in, in what's been kept? There are, and it made a little bit of a difficult job for me because I had to cover 1901 to 1904 kind of by just picking out different uh, references to the paper and different stories that had come out in other forms in other newspapers. So I was able to piece together a critical part of Trail's history. Trail became a city in 1901, and mm. so that it was very disappointing that the Trail the trail paper, which still then the Trail Creek News, uh, was not available to me, but... There were other people who wrote about it. One one local historian in particular, Elsie uh, uh, Turnbull, had written about uh, three little books about trail that she self-published. And uh, in, in that, you got some sense of it because she quoted the paper. No footnoting, but she did quote the paper. So I was able to draw something from, from those early years from her. And in terms of the personalities that, that, that appeared in the paper, I mean, you, you write in the book, there's a lot of gallows humor, poetry even. Is that right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. At one at one point, I started gathering the poems that that, that appeared in the paper, and this is later on in the book. But there there was a great story, great story by a local poet named Harry Hogue, and Harry was Harry became kind of the poet laureate of the Trail in the twenties, and he wrote a he wrote about the local sports scene and. This was, of course, a, a regular occurrence uh, in the pages of the Trail News. They even had a, an important sports news section, uh-huh. headline sports news. And Harry wrote a poem about the senior, uh, the senior local uh, hockey team. And of course, this is the this is the land of the Trail Smoke Eaters, right? The famous uh, world champion right. hockey yeah. players. And he said, the seniors, uh, and it's a poem, so you read it in the book. But 
I, I only excerpt a little, a uh, few stanzas of it, but he talks about the trail seniors challenging the, the juniors, and uh, and the, you know they're kind of being a little bit uh, sassy about it. And uh, of course, the juniors, according to the poem, the juniors beat them roundly, and the, and the leader of the seniors has to cook them a chicken dinner. It's called that chicken <laughs> dinner episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's fun, right? It's, yeah. It's, some of the poetry is, is, is decidedly doggerel uh, in nature, but there are other pretty interesting. Also, there aren't just it's, it's neat that they have local poets. Yeah, uh, which is even today is, is rare. You don't see that much. But of course, there was always Rudyard Kipling and Robert Service and any number of other poets that showed up. Wordsworth, you know, Coleridge. They they tended to publish, uh, you know, the, the well-known poets if they published at all. But this 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 was a variation on that. Yeah, McRae in 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 Flanders Field. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Of course, that was an important one for all of Canada, and, and they did recognize his contribution in Flanders Field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned sports there, uh, Ron. Um, in in terms of the actual journalism, you write that the the sports reporting was actually quite good, and 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 that's because of the the number of sports that are played in that area. Um, yeah. Uh, lacrosse, hockey, obviously, baseball, even. Yeah, and uh, professional boxing was important there, and wrestling. Mm. And this is, uh, you know, every once in a while they'd, they'd get a big boxing match, and so they covered that regularly. There was a lot on boxing, yeah. uh, and uh, I remember my dad talking about it too. <laughs> that was something he followed. He liked to watch boxing and wrestling on yeah. on TV. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, it was it was very much a sports-minded town, and. Uh, <laughs> It, it goes on. It, it, it doesn't end with my, my story in, uh, in the book in 1925. It goes on right through, of course, as you know, the Smoke Eaters win the World Cup in 1939 and again in 1961. Yeah. So this is a pretty important town, big, big golfing community, big skeet shooting community. Uh, interestingly, in the early days of the Trail Paper, uh, the Trail Weekly, a guy named Selwyn Blaylock comes along. He's a young guy. He's in his 20s. He comes out from McGill University. He's hired on by the smelter. He becomes an assayist, uh, assaying ore, and uh, he is a real sports guy. He's from Mont- he's from Montreal. He's actually from the he's actually from the Eastern Townships, uh, Sherbrooke. But uh-huh. he's, he's a Montrealer by, by education, and he he becomes a very important sports player. He becomes a scoring hockey player and a, a tennis player. He's always in all the competitions. He's a very competitive guy. And he becomes the president of the smelter years later. But in the early years, when he's just on, his, on the rise, he, he gets covered regularly. And he does get covered regularly. When he gets a motor car, it gets covered. When he gets married, it gets covered. So that's kind of an interesting sideline for me because my later book talks a lot about Playlock as the leader of the smelter. Mm. Um, in terms of, of uh, politics, um, you, you uh, chronicle throughout the book um, sort of the stance, stands uh, that uh, the stances, I should say, that the, that the paper takes in terms of candidates, in terms of issues. Um, we have this idea that the, the, the again another quaint notion that, that pa- a paper has to be free of bias, um, but but they're often founded, aren't they? On you know with with the editor or the publisher's uh, a political point of view, really part of um, the agenda, right? Oh, very much, and I think that, that I could highlight. The second uh, printer's devil I talk about, uh, a guy named William Essling. William Kendall Essling was a diehard conservative. 
Uh, and when he came on, he hired on to the Thompson paper in, the, in 1898, maybe even earlier. Uh-huh. He became their, became the news editor, but he brought with him a very strong view of conservative politics. He later became the MLA for Roslyn in, in Victoria, and much later in the 20s, he yeah. became the MP for the area. So he ran the paper for, and included, he also ran a, 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 the Roslyn Minor daily. For many years, he was very influential in the area, and they voted conservative for all of those years. So he brought he brought a, 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 that kind of view to the paper and expressed it uh, in the editorials and, of course, in the choice of news. And so, as you're reading the paper, Ron, and you see the the uh, you know it is of a different era; it's of a different place. Um, and so there are. Um, there, there's rhetoric in there that, that um, is racist um, uh, mm-hmm. towards the Chinese, towards East Indians. Um, even the Dukabors come into yes, focus, especially the Dukabors. Yeah. How, how do you how do you contend with with that in your book? I mean, you, you're very clear at the beginning that that um, you, you present this as history, um, but at the same time, you, you'd like us um, to, to, to uh, think of of um, I guess the context as well of of, of the era, right? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting historical conundrum. Like how you and we face this all the time. You've got to be very careful that you realize you're writing about history. You're not writing about the present. And when when this stuff comes up, there is an easy tendency to say, "Yeah, those racist buggers." You know. Sure. But in fact, they are following the the trend of the times. It's ugly. It's not healthy. It's it's uh, destructive to many communities. But, you know, you, you can't shy away from it and pretend it wasn't there. They, they encouraged racism toward those groups you've mentioned. Uh, they, they were, in some ways, viciously intent on getting rid of the Dukovors, uh, you know, these 8,000 people who migrated from Russia and then eventually from Saskatchewan to populate the Kootenays. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, were, they were really hard on them. I mean, for example, when they became quite, quite good carpenters, the Duke of Wars had, had skills, right, and they worked as a communal uh, communal effort. The local uh, tradespeople and the local uh, uh, building companies got very angry because the Duke of Wars would come in and they could build people's houses cheaper because yeah. they were working as a, uh, as a collective. And, uh, the, and so this became a pa- a, an issue in the paper and a critical issue because they felt this was unfair to the local white, and they were all white, white tradespeople. Uh, it, it doesn't come up so much in the smelter workforce, where there were very few Dukovors were registered as working there. But it does in the in the community itself. They were also excellent farmers. They brought a lot of uh, mar- market vegetables to the vor, and uh, again, they, they were good at it. And whenever you're you're good, you get challenged by the local uh, nativist community. Yeah, and and so what is it like when when um, it, it, like the situation of the Komogata Maru that comes up? Um, here yeah. in Vancouver, um, yeah. th- that gets reported on, obviously in trail, and um, that does stoke some uh, fear and, and and some ugly rhetoric as well towards towards uh, Indians in that context, right? It, it, it does indeed. They, they would often the editors would seize on those kinds of issues, and of course that was an important, a major issue, right? right? As was the the anti Asian riots in Vancouver in 1907. Right. So you know you're. You know, the editors are kind of dancing around a little bit there and, and uh, trying to cover it, but at the same time, they, they can't help themselves. They want, they want to say something uh, editorial about it. 
Yeah. Um, the other fascinating thing. Politics. Can yeah. Back in for a second. Yeah, please. The, the politics um, uh, is is interesting because it also becomes ideological. Uh, you're 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 at a period where uh, socialism is a notion, uh, anarchism is a presence, yeah. um, and of course the. Uh, Trade unions are on the rise, mm. and uh, Trail uh, in the well, Roslyn first, but uh, also Trail has a uh, local union, uh, part of the Western Federation of Miners, which is a radical U.S. union. Uh, they eventually help form the, the Wobblies, the Industrial Workers of the World, which is more and more radical than ever. So the paper, the Trail News, and its editors end up having to, to take a side, and they take a side against. Socialism against unionism yeah. and, and and anarchism and all the other isms, and they basically do that persistently right through the whole history of the paper. So that that kind of became quite interesting for me how how they would justify that. But every once in a while they'll have a they'll have a, a little note in the paper about a, uh, a smelter worker's smoker, and uh, this is an unusual men only event, usually, you know, just a fun event, drinking and smoking cigars and so forth, and yeah. a little entertainment. Might have a poem read by one of the locals. So th- this sort of got covered, but uh, the, underneath that of that veneer was, was this uh, insistence on don't subscribe to socialist rhetoric and so forth. So it, it comes out quite boldly in the paper. Ginger Goodwin is someone that... that uh, um uh, comes up in the book a couple times, a few times, I should yeah. say. Um, yeah. he, he made his way to Trail, is that right? Yeah, he was in Trail by 1916, and maybe a little earlier. Uh, got a job at the smelter. Uh, he, you know, he was up in the East Coopies even earlier than that as a miner uh-huh. up in up in Fernie. But when when we when he enters our story, he, he's he's basically uh, working at the smelter, and he's he's then getting very active in organizing a. a a revival of the union. But the union had become moribund over the years. It started in the early 1900s, but it kind of, kind of become uh, inactive. And Ginger Goodwin, uh, a socialist, ran that year for the Socialist Party of Canada in the in the elections. He lost, but he did he did garner some 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 percentage of the vote, and uh, he then became he was elected to lead the uh, the smelter workers, and by uh, 1917, that, that, that summer and fall, uh, he led the strike. Uh, he led them out on a strike, and by then there were about 1,500 uh, smelter workers. So that that was a major a major uh, effort. Unfortunately, um, and by then they were the International Mine Union of Mine Mill and Smelter Workers. They changed their name, but they they actually lost the strike pretty badly. Blaylock and and J.J. Warren, the the, 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 the uh, managing director kind of beat them. They, they had soft loud enough um, ore to uh, to shut them down, and that was a hard winter for those workers. But, uh, and, and, you know, it's still, still out what happened, but that following summer, uh, Ginger Goodwin, for some reason, had been found, he had been found uh, uh, not fit for military service. Don't forget, we're in the middle of the, of the, of the First World War. Yeah. And he's He's told you don't have to go to war. You can you're, you're out because you're too sick. But that summer, uh, the following year, he is found uh, fit for military service, for combat service, and uh, he flees. He flees. He uh, heads for Vancouver Island. Uh, the uh, special police are assigned to find him, and ultimately, uh, 
one of the uh, special police constables uh, shoots and kills him on Vancouver Island. And that causes a real furor. In fact, it leads to the first short-lived but in general strike mm. in history. Uh, this is well precedes the, general, or the Winnipeg General Strike, which is the more famous. Yeah. So that became interesting. And what, what became even more interesting for me was the, uh, the debate around whether Selwyn Blaylock, the smelter president, had anything to do with it. And the, the conclusion is, is that he did not, or at least we can't find evidence that he did. Yeah. But he's still out there, and you can still have these debates with people in Vancouver uh, and in trail about uh, Selwyn Blaylock's role in the, the death of Ginger Goodman. Yeah. The other fascinating thing as I'm reading the book, Ron, is, is um, when we get to, say, 1916, 1917 especially, um, and uh, the arrival of the flu, the Spanish flu, yeah. Um, we can see how that affects daily life in trail. And, and I'm reading this, you know, having, you know, lived through the pandemic of the last two or three years, three years, I guess. Um, yes. it, it must've been, um, eerie, if you will, to, 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 um, read those parts of the paper as you were writing the book. Yeah, it was because of course I'd been through the same COVID pandemic that everybody else had. And I, I was reading this paper and, the early 20s, uh, or late, you know, I guess 1918, 1919 was when the, when the, when the, that pandemic hit town. Yeah. And I was, I was reading about, you know, deaths in various communities, and they were, they were, they were big numbers, although small percentages, big numbers of people were dying and people were suffering. And uh, the paper, the Trail News, took a very strong stance against any kind of Indianization program. Um, uh, <laughs> And they, they published uh, features on why uh, the doctors had set up a big profitable trust and they were trying to get people to get vaccinated because they were making money on it. Sh- shades, shades of stories about Anthony Fauci, right? <laughs> and uh, they were, very, <laughs> they were very, very vocal about it. They, they felt that this was, uh, this was the wrong way to go. And uh, they, they expressed it in very angry terms. It was quite—I find it quite astonishing. They weren't—they no longer were really journalists at this point. They were advocates, and they were advocating that they should shut down the famous medical trust and uh, stop the stop the program. Uh, and meanwhile, people around them were dying. Yeah, so that, that too had a little bit of a similarity to our recent pandemic. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, you mentioned just just uh, offhand in in one of the parts of the book about how. Um, there's a notice. I think it's a, that, that um, it was for employees of the Trail News that, that they had to show um, that they had uh, passed their quarantine test, if you will, before returning yeah. to work. And, and um, you know, it, it did affect daily life, didn't it, in, in, in a big way? It did. Uh, but it was interesting because I think it's fair to say there was an overreaction on the part of the editor. I mean, the paper did publish a front-page box item that said people who are concerned about their children it will not be forced to be vaccinated. Nobody will. It's got to be agreed to. Yeah. But, the, 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 you know, the government notice was bending over backwards to say that we're not, you know, we're not fascists here. Yeah. But uh, it, uh, it, didn't, uh, it didn't salve very much the editor. The editor was going to go great guns against this. And so I found, I found that part fascinating. Uh, you know, when they picked up a, a cause, like the fire protection cause mm-hmm. or, or this particular cause or others, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was kind of odd to see them take sides. I mean, I want, I want to cite another cause. I mean, yeah. the, smelter, uh, the smelter at this time had become a, a great polluter of the Columbia River and the, and the surrounding uh, mountainside. 
Uh, this was often seen as a moonscape in those years. Uh, but it was also polluting south of the border in Stephen County and Washington. Mm. And farmers were complaining. They said, you are destroying our soil with your smelter. Um, so they, they decided they would take the smelter to court. This is early on. This is in the period of time I'm, I was studying this book. And uh, the paper took the side of the smelter. It basically shunned the farmers and said, you're, you know, you're, you must be wrong. You must be doing something wrong with your soil. Uh, and uh, they just basically did not, n- none of the editors ever took the side of the, co- of the uh, farmer or the locals around the pollution issue. The, the, the fumes from the smelter and the effluents in the, wa- in the water was a serious issue. And of course, the smelter got fined many times over later in, in, later in, their, in its history. Yeah. Uh, and quite recently, in fact, right a few years ago, got fined again. But th- this was an issue I thought was kind of interesting that they would side. You know, full full tilt side with the company on this, giving no quarter to the people who are complaining about the pollution. Yeah. Um, is, so when you look back at, the, especially these 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 first thirty years of of the paper, um, uh, you know, we all we all look at journalism as the first draft of history. Um, how, how do you how, how do you um, say weigh up how it does in terms of of that? Um, that task of, of say chronicling history. I mean, when you look at certain issues, it, 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 they obviously got it wrong. Um, but but on the whole, um, more right than wrong, or, or, or how, well, how do you well, view it? it? Let me answer it a different way. I, just this morning, while we were, were waiting to chat, mm-hmm. I, I read a I read a big long feature by the uh, by the uh, current editor of the uh, New York Times. It's a piece published in the in the recent Columbia Journalism Review. And, and what he said was, right, journalism is the first draft of history. But here's the rub. The first draft often gets it wrong. <laughs> mm. So, you know, you're, 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 you don't want to go to, you don't want to go to the bank on the first draft. You know, you want to make sure that uh, you know that uh, there are flaws in uh, journalist, uh, in journalistic treatment of any issue. Uh, and sometimes you, you get a fairly strong bias. <clears throat> Objectivity is excuse me, uh, not really what's going on anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's the case with the trail news, is that they, they are drafting uh, the early history of the area, but they are making mistakes or they're making, <clears throat> they're making uh, uh, you know, gestures that are going in, in the direction that they see fit. It's their prerogative, right? It's their newspaper. Yeah. But they are making, they are making uh, 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 news that isn't necessarily... In favor of the full community, although they they vow that it is that all the editors are very strong on community support, and they they become members of the local Freemasons and all the different service clubs. They became they become churchgoers. They they engage in the local fall fair. They they they, they become school board people. Uh, so these these guys are really engaged in their community as they write about it, and and that's reflected in what they cover in the paper as well. Yeah. And so, um, when you look back at it, I mean, you were you were having trouble finding it at first, finding the paper, um, and and you become a great advocate of of, of uh, making it available online for for, for all of us. Um, yes, this is very important history, obviously, and and um, uh, this is stuff that we should know. Um, what is, say, the Trail News's place in journalism history? I guess it was absent for a while, but with this book, I think you're bringing it back, aren't you? 
Yeah, I, I mean, and I'm in touch with with the, with the Trail Times people now, and the editor's friend. I mean, it, it, she's running a little excerpt from the book uh, this coming week. So, I mean, the, the, it, I think they're they're kind of keen to know their place in history as well, and I think that's that, that's what the the book does. It says, with whatever flaws come out, it has a place in history as one of the earliest weekly and longest running weekly papers ever. It has a, a, a colorful past. It, 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 whatever, whatever you think of it, it, it covered the waterfront. Uh-huh. I mean, it's pretty hard for a weekly paper to cover the war, uh, yeah. whether it's the Boer War already on or the First World War. They do try, and that's some of the some of the sadness of the of the story too. Is that people in Trail and other parts of the Kootenays saw their their children come home in body mm. bags, right, or yeah. boxes, or whatever they should. And and they they came home. There are vivid stories from those people uh, who came home, those soldiers. And the, the the paper, the Trail News, covers that. They publish the letters home. They publish the work that the, the local uh, uh, Red Cross did to help them by sending them cigarettes and and knitted socks and so forth. And this all comes out in this paper. It's a very visual uh, look at a community that that is facing war on the home front. Yeah. So I, I I found that fascinating. I mean, uh, I mean, every small town would have done that. Every small town paper would have done that. I got lucky in finding all these thirty years of the small town paper I'm associated with. Yeah, I understand you're going there next week. That part of the the, the province. Yeah, we're we're going up to to meet up with people. We'll be uh, speaking in in Trail and Roslyn and nearby Selmo and Nelson and Castlegar, that the whole community of, of towns up there in the West Kootenai, yeah. not getting to the East Kootenai. Ron, you've done a great service with writing this book. Congratulations and, and, and continued good luck with it. I so appreciate your time today. I've enjoyed this chat. Okay, me too, Joe. Thank you very much, and good luck with it. Is. The website for more is at caitlinpress.com. There will be events in Rossland and Grand Forks next week. Uh, the book is called Printer's Devils. How a Feisty Pioneer Newspaper Shaped the History of British Columbia's Smelter City, 1895-1925. to It's published by Caitlin Press. Its author, Ron Verjou, joined me on the line from uh, Victoria in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunder.